As I said before, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 23. We'll begin in verses uh, 44 and read down to 47. We've been doing a study on Communion Sundays, the first Sunday of each month for the past several months uh, of the last seven sayings Christ uh, proclaimed on the cross. And today we come to the final one. And it's been a very encouraging word for me, and I hope and pray that it will be to you as well. Let us hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Luke 23:44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That would be noon, would be the sixth hour. Ninth hour would be three o'clock in the afternoon. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word and write its truth upon our hearts today. I want to answer two questions today in uh, just a few minutes. I want to answer, first of all, what did Jesus mean? What did he mean by, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? And what did Jesus do? Because what he says, when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, there's implications for what Jesus is, is doing is, has done, is doing, and will do in our lives. We want to explore that for just a, a few minutes. But what does Jesus mean here when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? Now, Jesus is about to breathe his last, as it says. The other gospel writer says that he will yield up or give up his spirit. So he's about to die. And just before dying, he makes this last and final word from the cross into your hands father I commit my spirit now before I finish answering that question I want to take a little side path because this is a good opportunity to explain what we believe about death and our spirit and our body there's a lot of confusion out there in the world today about what happens to someone a human being when they die first of all we believe that human beings are made of two parts. Uh, the, the first part being the spirit. Another word for spirit is soul. The spirit or the soul is one part of the human body. These are not two different parts. They're the same part, synonymous words. And the other part is our bodies, the human body. Now some people believe that the human being is made up of three parts, Spirit, soul, and body, they make a distinction between the spirit and the soul. We do not believe that. We reject that teaching. Uh, it's called the a tripart view. We would go with the bipart view if you want to use the theological language and impress your friends. Uh, two, two parts, so body and soul, another word for soul being spirit. Now when a human being dies, there is a separation between the two parts, between the, the spirit or soul and the body. And that's what's about to happen with Jesus here. The body, of course, returns to the dust 
as the Bible puts it, but the soul is immortal. The Westminster Confession of Faith, our Confession of Faith, explains what happens to a person's soul at death this way. And I quote, The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies, which are in the grave. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. So, the only time a person's soul is separated from their body is during that period between their death and the last day when Christ returns and your specific human body will be reunited with your soul. That's important. During this time between your death and Christ's return, which is referred to by theologians as the intermediate state. The soul is either in heaven or hell. The soul does not go to sleep. Some people believe that. The soul does not go to sleep, but the soul goes to its eternal destination. Now, outside of this time, uh, between death and the resurrection of the last day, your soul will always be united to your particular human body. That's very important. So when there's a funeral here, for example, in the, as has happened in the past, I can look down at that body that's usually right there where the communion table is, and I can say to the families of, of this believer that one day they will hug that neck and hold those hands again. They will be reunited with that physical person who will be reunited with their soul one day. And that is a great encouragement to me, and I hope to you, as well. If you're a believer, your body that you will have forever will become a glorified body. Now, some people might say, well, I don't want this body. <laughs> it's too tall or too short or too fat or too thin or whatever it might be. It's breaking down. But you will, you will have a glorified body if you're a believer. No more sickness, no more disease, no more decline or even decay. The wicked and disobedient shall also have their bodies back, but they will be cast body and soul, as it says in the confession, into eternal torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's a sobering thought. Now this means that we reject the idea of reincarnation. And you think, well, surely, I mean, of course, why would you even bring that up? Um, I'm telling you this because surveys say that a shocking number of Christians, of professing Christians, believe in reincarnation. The only proper place for a soul is in that soul's human body. And only after death and before the resurrection are the two separated. Your soul does not ever take up the body of a cow or any other animal or any other human being, for that matter. Just because you're short, it does not mean that you once were Napoleon in another life. The only time a soul is in a body, it is in a human body. The only time your soul is in a body is going to be in your human body. And only human beings have souls. Animals do not have souls 
don't throw rocks at me. I told someone one time who asked me about this, and I, and I explained that, that, I mean, her, her pets, her dogs, they do not have souls. And I think she's still mad at me. Years later. You know, pets are precious, and, but they don't have souls. It doesn't mean we shouldn't care for them, shouldn't love them. We should love creation, uh, take care of creation. That was one of Adam's jobs in the Garden of Eden, to care for creation and name the animals. But they still they don't have souls. Okay, so that's what happens to us when we die. Our bodies and souls are separated, but they will be reunited together with our bodies. So back to the main path. What does Jesus mean here when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? See, Jesus is about to breathe his last, yield up his spirit. He's about to die. In a short term, uh, short time, Jesus' body will be buried in the tomb. So before he gives up his spirit, he commits his soul to the Father. He commits it to the Father. He deposits, that's what the word means, or entrusts his spirit, his soul, into the Father's care and keeping. And he's using the words from Psalm 31.5. You know, he's been quoting uh, from the scriptures uh, throughout his time on the cross. He quotes, you know, uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, quoting from the Psalms, for example. So he's committing his soul to the Father. And that agrees with what he had previously said to the thief on the cross. You remember when he turns to the thief, he says, Today... Today you will be with me in paradise. Again, there's no such thing as soul sleep. Jesus' soul and the soul of the thief are not going to sleep. No, they're going to be in paradise. Jesus and the thief and all who put their trust in God, their souls are in heaven until the last day. The only difference here, this is important, between Jesus and everyone else whose souls are in heaven at the moment is that he already has his glorified body. See? He rose from the dead. And he's been resurrected. His body and his soul are united again. And that's, of course, what we were celebrating last week, Easter. But because he is reunited with his body, we will be too, just like him. We will become like he is now by faith in him. He's the first fruits, as the Bible says, and then we will be the same. So that is what Jesus is saying. As he dies, he's committing his soul to the Father. His soul is going to be in heaven. He's going to rise from the dead, and his soul and body are going to be reunited. And he represents us. The God-man at the right hand of the Father represents us there at the throne. And he intercedes for us, as it tells us in scriptures. So that's what Jesus meant. That's what he was saying. But what did Jesus do? And really, this is, this is the most important part. Uh, it confirms... Also, Jesus' previous statement that he made, uh, the one right before this statement, it is finished. It is finished, Jesus said before he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's done something. He's completed it. He's brought it to fruition. It's over. It's done. He has finished it. What has he finished? He has finished everything that the Father has asked him to do. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, as he himself said, to redeem sinners, to pay the price for them on the cross, and he has completed that work. He has fulfilled 
everything that the Father has asked him to do. Now theologians speak of the active and passive obedience of Christ. Those can be confusing theological terms, but simply what they're saying, and uh, it's very important to understand this, they're saying that Jesus has done everything that the law requires, that God's law requires as a substitute, as our substitute. He has kept the commandments by doing what they command. He's done what the commandments said do. And he has refrained from what they forbid. You know, every commandment has a kind of a positive and negative side. You know, you should not steal from anyone. Uh, but you should also, on the positive side, uh, protect people and their goods. You should not kill someone. You should promote life. See, there's a positive side and a negative side to that. And Jesus always kept the commandments. He always did what was required, and he always refrained from doing what was forbidden in the, in the commandments. This is the active obedience of Christ, keeping the law. The passive obedience does not mean that he was passive in any way. What it refers to is the penalties of the law. Not only did Jesus keep the law perfectly in the place of sinners, but he also bore the penalties of the law, the, the penalties that are required when the law is broken. And he did that in the place of sinners as well. So he kept the law and he paid for the breaking of the law. And that's what the Father had enlisted him to do, to come and pay the penalty for sin on the cross and to fulfill all the requirements of the law in his life and in his death, because even in his death, he was being obedient to do what the Father had told him to do, to come and sacrifice himself, to lay down his life so that we could be saved. John Flavel says, Such is the work Christ finished. Whatever the law demanded is perfectly paid. Whatever a sinner needs is perfectly obtained and purchased. Nothing can be added to what Christ has done. He put the last hand to it when he said, It is finished. When he said, it is finished. Jesus had done everything that God required of us and him. He kept the law for us. He bore the penalty of the law for us on the cross. This was the work that the Father had entrusted to him. He completed it fully and perfectly. Therefore, he could say with confidence and with the peace that passes all understanding, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Everything you've asked me to do, I've done perfectly, completely, and fully, and now I can rest. Now I give my soul to you. I'm about to die to complete the work, and I entrust my soul to you. My soul is pure, and I want it to go back to you. He's yielding up his spirit, and he's breathing his last, and, and he's saying to the Father, I put my perfect soul into your keeping. That should fill us with all kinds of confidence in Christ. He wasn't afraid to die because he had perfectly satisfied all that the Father required of him. What he required of him was to lay down his life for us. Before he voluntarily does so on the cross, 
he commits his soul to the Father. Jesus himself said, This reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. And that's what he did. The centurion confirms it. The centurion saw all that had happened and the peaceful way that he died and exclaimed, Surely this was an innocent man. Matthew and Mark say, he says, Surely this was the Son of God. Just think about that for a minute. The centurion who probably had nothing to do with Jesus in his life witnesses everything that Jesus says on the cross and all that's going on during the crucifixion. And, and the way that Jesus dies, the way that, that he communicates in his final words this sense of peace and confidence as he dies, the centurion is taken aback by it, by this overwhelming sense of peace that Jesus can say to, to the God of the universe, I freely, confidently, and peacefully put my soul into your hands. I have nothing for which I need to be ashamed. I have nothing that is lacking in my obedience to you. I can give my soul to you with confidence and in the peace knowing that you will receive it. Centurion sees this and just blurts out, this guy was innocent because of the way that Jesus died there. Quite amazing. Now, would we have that kind of confidence to say, Father, I've done everything you've ever asked me to do. I have kept all the commandments. I never did anything you said I should not do. I always, in every situation, did what you required of me. I always loved you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I always loved my neighbor as myself. Now, if you could say that when you died, you could die like Jesus, with confidence and with peace, knowing that you had done everything required of you. But who could say that? There is none righteous. No, not one, the Bible tells us. None of us can have confidence in our obedience when we come to die. Not one human being should have the confidence to say that. It would be a lie because we have not loved God with all of our strength and our heart and our soul and our mind. We have not loved our neighbors ourselves and that really that sums up the Ten Commandments for us. But wouldn't it be great to face death with such confidence and peace? Wouldn't it be great to not be afraid to die? Well that is a possibility because of what Christ did. The work of Christ, the work he did in his life and death was for sinners like you and me. Entrust your life to Him. Place your sinful life in His hands. And by His work, He will wash and cleanse you from sin and will welcome you into His family. He is able to cleanse you 
because he's already paid the penalty for it on the cross. He's fulfilled all obedience in our place. And so when you die, having put your trust in him, he will welcome your soul into heaven. Until the last day when he returns and our bodies are resurrected, we will then be reunited, body and soul, and will live with him in the new heavens and new earth. Because Christ committed his soul to the Father and was received, the same can be said of those who trust in Christ. See, It's the same thing that happens when we, when we put our faith in him. All that he has is credited to us. His perfect life is credited to us. Our sins are credited to him. He paid for those sins on the cross. That payment is credited to us. He commits his soul to the Father. If we are connected to him, our soul is committed to the Father as well. He was received by the Father. We will be received by the Father as well. He was raised from the dead. We will be raised from the dead as well. He lives forever with soul and body we will do as well. Calvin says, Let us now remember that it was not in reference to himself alone that Christ committed his soul to the Father, but that he included, as it were, in one bundle all the souls of those who believe in him, that they may be preserved along with his own. If you are in Christ, trusting in him, you can have confidence when you die that you will be received just as Christ was received because you're received not on your own merit, but on his merit. When they were stoning Stephen, he looked up into heaven and he said, Jesus, receive my spirit. Similar to what Jesus himself said, because he had confidence in the finished work of Christ. And we can have that kind of confidence as well, the confidence of Stephen. Lord, I haven't done everything perfectly. I'm a sinner. But because of your perfect life, because of your sacrificial death, I ask you to receive my spirit. And I know that you have promised that you would if I put my trust in you. I want to encourage you to do that today, to put your trust in Christ. It doesn't mean that death won't be a scary thing. But we can face it with confidence. The more that we know and more that we love Christ, the more confident we will be that what he has done for us uh, we will preserve us forever. We'll protect us forever. We put our life in his hands. And he's not going to, to let anything snatch it at, away from his hand, as he told us. He won't fumble the ball. He won't drop it. He will carry us to the desired haven forever and ever. May we be encouraged by that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God that encourages our hearts. And we pray